And we're going to talk about the five solas of the Reformation tonight. Why would we do that? Because today is not just Halloween uh, for the kids. They're all excited. Most of the kids and parents are not here probably because it's Halloween, which is fine. Uh, I'm not hating. My, my kids are going trick-or-treating tonight, so I'm not, I'm not a hater. I, I don't give Satan a day. I know a lot of people like to say, it's Satan's day. Satan doesn't get a day. <laughs> it's God's day. But today is actually a glorious church history day because today marks the 504th anniversary of the Reformation. Did you know that? On October 31st, 1517, in Germany, a Roman Catholic monk and theology professor at the University of Wittenberg nailed 95 theses on the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany, in Latin. Latin was the kind of educated language of the day. And those 95 theses were basically protests against what was going on in the Roman Catholic Church in the early 1500s. What resulted is what we call the five solas of the Reformation. Now, I know that's from up here. I can read that. I know you can't read that. I'm sorry. This is actually a t-shirt graphic. If you want to go to missionaware.com and get this t-shirt, you can get it. So here are the five solas of the Reformation. I'm going to repeat them throughout the whole message. Sola Scriptura, Latin for scripture alone. Sola Fide, Latin for faith alone. Sola Gratia, which is Latin for uh, grace alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone, and then Soli Dea Gloria for the glory of God alone. Those are the five solas of the Reformation. They are the pillars that emerged out of the Reformation in the early 1500s. Now, why would we do a whole message on the solas of the Reformation. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to take each five of the solas and we're going to unpack them. Well, the reason we would do that is twofold. One, it is the, today the 504th anniversary of the Reformation. Every, all the scholars point back to 1517, October 31st at that castle church door in Wittenberg. But secondly, did you know that the main demographic in Pittsburgh, of religious belief is Catholic. Did you know that? 32% of people in Pittsburgh identify as Catholic. Now, how many evangelicals, meaning us, people who believe the gospel, people who are Jesus-centered, people who love the scriptures, how many do you think identify as gospel people? Only 15%. So the Catholics got us more than doubled in Pittsburgh. Now, if you remember this graphic from the baptism uh, Sunday, what I did there was I took the evangelical Protestants and the historic black Protestants, put them together as a gospel holding group out of all these who would be under the large banner of Christian. We only make up 17% who have the gospel. And that's more than the nuns, the no religious affiliation at 18%. So the largest, if you will, demographics in Pittsburgh are either no religious affiliation at all or Catholics. Then under both those demographics are gospel-holding Christians. So it's important that you understand because you're going to run into uh, Catholics. 
You're going to run into them and you're going to need to understand to some degree, what is the big difference between us and the Roman Catholics? Okay. This is what emerged out of the Reformation. Uh, the 95 theses that Martin Luther, the German monk, posted on that castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany, were protests against what was happening in the Catholic church there in Germany. He wanted to debate. He wanted to uh, have a formal you know, intellectual discussion about what he saw as wrong with Christianity as it was being expressed in Germany. So what I would like to do is unpack the five solas to celebrate this 504th anniversary. So again, here are the five solas of the Reformation. You could say, out of the Reformation, what came? And you might say, well, you know, the tulip, the John Calvin's tulip. Well, not really. That came way later. But what came out of uh, the Reformation was really these five solas, all Protestants, hold to these five solas, or they should. <laughs> so Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, um, non-denominational, any evangelical free, there's so many denominations out there. They all hold to these five solas, or they should hold to these five solas. Now, so we're going to unpack them. What are they? Well, they're scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, God's glory alone. What I like to think about these, the way it makes sense in my mind and helps my memory, the five solas are really a recovery of the gospel. The gospel was lost in the Middle Ages due to ritual, due to religion, due to all kind of superstition. And what happened was many people got back to the scriptures. The scriptures were translated into the common language of the people, whatever language that was available, and people began to rediscover the scripture and the gospel for themselves. So the way I like to think about it is this. I say we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. How do you know that? Because scripture alone teaches us that. So that's my little help for you if you want to try to remember what are the five solas of the Reformation. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. How do you know that? Because scripture alone teaches us this. These are the five solas of the Reformation. So what we're really talking about here is uh, what's called soteriology, okay? The Greek word soterios is the, the word we get salvation from. It's found in Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing soterios or salvation for all people. Now we know the grace of God in this text is Jesus. He is the grace of God and he brings soterios or salvation for all people. So when we do soteriology, we are studying salvation. So in a sense, that's what we're gonna do here for the next half hour or so. We're going to study salvation. How do we know that we are saved? What grounds our salvation in reality? How do you know that you're going to heaven and not hell? That's a good question, isn't it? Okay. These are the big questions of the Reformation. How do we be made right with God? How do we have eternal security? How do we know where authority comes from? How do we know where ultimate truth comes from? These are all questions that not only emerged, but got answered in the Reformation. So we're going to study soteriology here. So number one, we're saved by grace alone. 
Now, this is probably the most famous text in the Bible for salvation. It's Ephesians chapter two. Just prior to this text, you remember that Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So he, he didn't say you were spiritually sick. He didn't say you were on life support. He didn't say you were drowning with one last breath. He said you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in the way you used to walk, following your own thoughts and desires, basically following your flesh. And by following your flesh, I'm paraphrasing now, you were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We all lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. It's a paraphrase. And so the idea is we were spiritually dead to God. We had no spiritual life in us except for spiritual darkness. No light. In fact, we love the darkness, Jesus says in John 3, 19, rather than the light and won't go into the light for fear our deeds will be exposed. Verse four in Ephesians 2 says, but God being rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. So God breathes into us spiritual life and we become alive spiritually. Then Paul begins to unpack this life that God brings to us. And he says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. So it's God's grace that saves us. What are we saved by? God's grace. Now you could say, what is God's grace? The person and work of Christ. That is God's grace. Jesus accomplished what we could not accomplish by living perfectly according to God's standard, going and dying a substitutionary death on a Roman cross, being physically buried and God being pleased with the sacrifice, raising him from the grave three days later, and then 50 days later, he, or 40 days later, he rises to, seat, to sit at the right hand of the Father in power and glory and is interceding for us there now. So the grace that God gives us is his unmerited, undeserved, demerited, in fact, favor. I choose to save you. Why would you save me? Because I wanted to. It has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with you. Now, you might think that's bad news, but actually that's good news. Why is that good news? It's good news because if you got something to get it, that means you could probably do something to get rid of it or to lose it. But because it's solely on God to show grace to whom he wills, and it's his prerogative to show grace or to give justice, which is what Romans 9 teaches us. We'll get there in uh, a chapter after chapter eight. We'll get there. Uh, it's God's prerogative to show mercy to whom he will and to show uh, compassion to whom he will, or he can show justice to whom he will. When he says, I choose you for compassion and mercy, that is called grace. If he leaves you to your own sin and the consequences of your sin, that's called justice. And neither are wrong. If God decides you get justice and you get mercy and grace, he's done no one wrong because he is the Lord of glory, the highest authority in all the universe. He is the most high. No one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Or what are you doing? He defines justice, what is right and wrong. We don't know right from wrong except by God's character and it being displayed. So we're saved by God's grace. Simply his choosing because he wants to has nothing to do with us. Now we receive that grace through faith. 
but not just faith in general, not just trusting or some kind of weird belief. Like I'm a person of faith. I'm a spiritual person. That means nothing. Faith is trust and faith needs to land on an object. I read an illustration today of, uh, I think it was Kevin DeYoung. He said he grew up in a cold area in Michigan, I believe. And he said they used to go ice skating in the winter and he played hockey. And he said, inevitably on that first freeze, he would kind of tiptoe out on the ice just to see if it was solid enough, but there'd already be someone out there skating around, having a good old time and joy. And his illustration was this, me being very hesitant, hoping the ice is solid enough. I have little faith. That person out there in joy, just ripping around has a ton of faith in the solidness of the ice. Both being held up, one with weak faith, one with strong faith, but what's the object of their faith holding them up? The ice, the solidness of the ice. It's not about your faith. It's about the object of your faith. Many people have faith in terrible, insecure, bad deals, (laughs) okay? Our faith lands in Jesus Christ, on Jesus Christ. He is the solid rock on which we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Jesus is the object of our faith. He's who we're standing on as solid ground, the solid ground of salvation. Okay, so whether you have weak faith in Jesus or very strong faith in Jesus, guess what? It doesn't matter. As long as you are trusting in Jesus, you are safe and saved. So it's by grace, God's grace, that you're saved through faith. We only get the grace of God by receiving or trusting. It's actually both. We receive the grace of God by trusting in the person and work of Christ. And I love this second part. And this is not of your own doing. This is not of your own doing. What is not of my own doing? Well, let's just back up. Faith saved grace. None of it is your own doing. It's God's grace. It's God saving you. And the faith you have is even a gift. Did you know that in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, it said God gives the gift of repentance. He grants repentance. Even though it's something we do, even though faith is something we exercise, we can't exercise it unless it's given to us as a gift. So clearly here, if we're going to be exegetical, which is what does the text actually say? And you're pulling out of the text, the truth. You're not reading into the text, what you want it to mean. The text actually says, and this is not of your own doing. The this here points to faith, saved, and grace. You are not the one who originates grace, faith, or your salvation. It's God. This is one of the solas of the Reformation. We're saved by grace alone. It is the gift of God. That's pretty clear. Not a result of works. It's not something you do. It's not something you earn. You can't get God's favor by anything you do or don't do. No, so that no one can boast. God does this this way. God, why would you do that? So that we have no grounds for arrogance, pride, or boasting. That's why God did this. Now, in two verses here, in one text in the Bible, there is so much richness packed in here. God will not give his glory to another. Okay, that's a preview of uh, soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. He is so concerned about having glory for himself and not sharing it with anyone 
that he cuts out any grounds for boasting by giving you the grace, giving you the faith, and then saving you. And you have nothing to do but say, thank you, which is our closing song. Jesus, thank you. (laughs) It's all we can say. We put our hands up, or some of us proverbially, they're up. They're just not up. Jesus, thank you. I want to challenge you, you guys who don't lift your hands, just try it one time. It's so liberating. Just do it. No one's watching. No one cares. Just do it. When you're singing, put them up. You'll feel great. No one's thinking you're weird. It's not too charismatic. Okay? Do it. Try it. I won't be watching to see who does it later. (laughs) Okay. Eddie. All right. We're saved by grace alone. Listen, through faith alone. We're saved by grace alone, sola gratia, through faith alone, sola fide, okay? Now, faith alone, let me back up for a second. What was being uh, contrasted with Rome here, the Roman Catholic Church at the time? Well, what was going on was there was all kinds of human effort and human merit to get God's favor. That's what was going on. And so the reformer said, no, it's not by works. There's no religious ritual we can do. There's no bad that we cannot do to earn God's favor. There's no works that we can do. It's only by grace alone. And by grace, meaning God's grace with no human involvement, period. That's what grace alone means. We're saved by grace alone in contrast to religious effort or good works, especially in the Roman Catholic sacramental system. Grace alone, nothing we can do. Now, secondly, faith alone. Faith alone. Now, what was being contrasted here is, what is the grounds for justification? Now, you were here for Romans 3, so justification is not a foreign concept to you. Justification simply means, how are we right with God? How are we declared not guilty when we are guilty? And you remember, we are saved by faith. We're declared justified by faith. This is the end of Romans 3 here. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, what you're going to notice is as we go through these five solas here, there's overlap. So you notice the grace there, right? He says, and we are justified by what? By his grace. But you look at uh, verse 25 and he says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. How do we get the grace of God? Through faith. Now, the propitiation is a great word, a word we don't often use. It simply means to satisfy a deity. And God the Father was satisfied with the sacrifice that Jesus made. He was pleased with the person and work of Jesus, his substitutionary death on the cross. God was propitiated. His wrath was diverted. It landed on Christ as a substitute, and now it doesn't have to land on his people. Why? Because it already landed on Jesus and Jesus soaked up the wrath of God in our place. We get that grace, the person and work of Christ, through faith, by trusting in Jesus. This was to show, this was to show God's righteousness. 
Because, why? Why would it show God's righteousness? Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. All the Old Testament wicked saved people. <laughs> like, we, I don't have time, but we could go through all the Old Testament heroes and catalog their wickedness. They were all wicked. Even uh, the great father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Judah, the lion from the tribe of Judah, you know he slept with his daughter-in-law by accident? thinking she was a prostitute? They're messed up, man. All those Old Testament saints are messed up. Okay? And we could go through a lot of messed up saints. But God, for those who trusted in Christ, well, the Messiah to come, we'll say. Jesus wasn't revealed yet as Jesus, the Messiah. He passed over their former sins, he did not judge them as their sins occurred. He rather took the wrath that their sins deserved and he landed them on Jesus on the cross. David's sin, Judah's sin, Abraham's sin, Noah's sin, Adam's sin, Eve's sin, Sarah's sin. And we could just go through all the Old Testament believers. Jesus was punished in their place too, not just ours. So this text is saying that God in his forbearance, that means patience, in his divine patience, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. When? When Christ died. In other words, no one gets away with anything. Every sin must be punished and will be punished. Either we pay the price or he pays the price. Those are the options. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. Not just faith in general, though. Look, faith in Jesus. So we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. It's not about what we do. It's about who we're trusting. It's not about what we do. It's about who we're trusting. Now, what was being battled here was a synergistic, which just means two or more working together, a synergistic cooperating with God to become actually righteous. So Rome taught this, and this is very simplistic, okay? I don't have time to unpack it in a deep way, but just here's a simplistic, this is what was being taught. Your regeneration happens at baptism as an infant. This is what Rome would teach. So you are washed in the waters of regeneration, you are born again, and now you have to practice the sacraments in order to get God's grace infused into you until you become actually righteous. And at the point of your actual righteousness, God justifies you because you're actually not guilty anymore. That is what Rome taught. That is what Martin Luther believed, the great reformer. That's what he believed. That's what he was up against. And so he discovered through Romans 1, 16 and 17, no, it's those who have faith who are justified. The gospel is the power of God and the salvation. And the gospel is what is the means by which we are saved. The good news about Jesus. And then our trust lands on Jesus after we've heard the good news and we are justified or declared righteous. It's not about us actually being righteous. It's about Jesus actually being righteous. And that actual righteousness of Jesus given to us as a gift. Do you see the big difference? The big difference is you accomplish righteousness with God's help 
by the sacraments, by your, your baptism and regeneration. The other is Jesus did everything, period. <laughs> he was righteous in your place. He fulfilled the law. I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. So we in Christ are righteous because we're united to him and his righteousness is our righteousness. It's not about you becoming actually righteous. It's about Jesus really being righteous and that given to you as a gift. And you wonder like, what is purgatory about? Does the Bible teach purgatory? So purgatory is for those who aren't quite righteous by the time they die and then they go to purgatory. It's kind of like a waiting room for hell, if you will. And you're, you become actually righteous in purgatory and that could take thousands of years. It could take millions of years, but eventually you will be righteous and then you can be ushered into heaven. That's purgatory. That's what Luther was up against. You know, Luther was also up against uh, the buying of indulgences. This is actually the one that got him really, really mad. Uh, there was uh, John Tetzel who was going around and he showed up in Wittenberg and uh, he would have this little jingle where he would say, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. <laughs> that was his little jingle. And what he, he was a very dramatic preacher. And basically what he said was, you can buy from the Pope a ticket for your relatives that come out of hell. It's called an indulgence. And Luther saw the unbiblicalness of this. And he was like, indulgences are just uh, taking people's money and there's no help to the dead at all. This is a scam to get people's money. Uh, Brett wants me to show the uh, Martin Luther biography back there. So we have several of those holding it up. Yeah. So anyway, if you want to learn more about that, I think what Brett's saying is, bro, you need to get on with this sermon. If they want to learn that, tell them to pick up, pick up the biography. Good look, Brett. I appreciate that. All right, let's move on. So grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Okay. So the Christ alone is versus any kind of sacramental system. Okay. It's Jesus versus the sacraments. Now, I, I have many Roman Catholic, not only friends, but family members, okay? And so I, I am not bashing on Catholics here as an unsympathetic person. Most of my father's side of the family are hardcore Irish Catholics, a fighting Irish, Notre Dame. And, and there's priests on that side. I have an abbot on that side who teaches priests. Like, this is not abstract for me. My family members are hardcore Catholic. Okay. And I want you to at least have some degree of knowledge if you end up talking to a Catholic coworker or perhaps a relative, or you need to understand what are the differences. Okay? So by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, what's happening here in Acts chapter four, chapter three is James, I'm sorry, John and Peter heal a man who was lame from birth at the entrance of the temple. Okay, they heal him. He's asking for money. Peter's like, look, Gold and silver I do not have, but what I do have I give you. Get up and walk. And he grabs the guy's hand and pulls him up and he's, he's healed. And this large crowd draws around him and they're amazed. And Peter and John begin to proclaim Christ and the gospel. And the, the chief priests and the temple guards, and they're all mad. Okay, so they, they arrest them and they bring them before the ruling body. And Peter and John are on trial. And they ask, 
in this trial? By what power or by what name did you do this? By what power or what name did you heal this lame man who was lame from birth? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, rulers of the people and elders. This is a court scene, okay? They're on trial. They're about to either be punished as guilty or they're going to be let free as non-offenders. This is a trial. You're looking at an ancient 2,000-year-old Jewish first-century trial. Peter's his own lawyer. <laughs> he, he takes the stand himself, and he's like, I'm going to give my own defense. He's like, back up. And he says, by the power of the Holy Spirit, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, now you can see all of their brows go down and their frowns appear and their teeth grit. They don't like the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He makes it worse. Whom you crucified. (laughs) It's like Nathan to David, you're the man, right? You all are the man whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. We are eyewitnesses to this. By him, by Jesus, this man is standing before you well. They did not want to hear that. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, the builders of the Jewish religion, which has become the cornerstone of a new religion. And interestingly, in Peter's uh, epistle, he says, you are living stones being built together into a house for God. People, we are the, the stones of this new temple, this place where God dwells. And here's Jesus, the chief cornerstone. He's rejected your building and he's building a new building and Jesus is the cornerstone. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. There's our phrase, in Christ alone. There is salvation in no one else. This is Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There it is, Christ alone. Jesus alone is our only hope. Do you remember in Acts chapter 16, Paul is in prison and there's a great earthquake. He's in Philippi and the, the prisoners begin to escape. And here comes the guard who was sleeping and he knows that he's about to die because his job was to keep all these prisoners in here and now they're escaping and he's about to fall on his sword and Paul calls out and he says, don't do it, we are all here. And he comes and falls down at Paul's feet and he says, what must I do to be saved? Do you remember Paul's answer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ 
and you will be saved. You and your whole household. There's our answer, friends. There is salvation in no other name except for the name of Jesus. Now we know that actually the whole Bible is about Jesus. This is a Christ-centered view of scripture, a redemptive historical view of the Bible. A biblical theology would see Jesus in the Old Testament as well before he was incarnate. In fact, Jesus on the road to Emmaus, resurrected body, meets with two of his discouraged disciples and he says to them, beginning with Moses, so Luke writes this as an account, beginning with Moses and all the prophets that he is Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now this text is very important. Here's what's going on here. Jesus is resurrected. His disciples are discouraged. They say, we thought that this Jesus was the one. And more than that, it's the third day and our women are giving reports that his body is not there. And some are saying they've seen angels. And and Jesus says this amazing thing to them. He says, oh, you foolish ones. Slow to believe what? The scriptures. I love that. He doesn't say slow to believe the women. Slow to believe James and John who went and saw the tomb empty either. Slow to believe Mary Magdalene who hugged him. No, he says, slow to believe the scriptures. Now we're overlapping with scripture alone here, but that's okay. And then we get this text. And beginning with Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and all the prophets, basically that's summary for the rest of the 39 books of the Old Testament. He interpreted, he not just read it, but he showed them what it meant. That's what interpret means. The things concerning himself. Now, I could do the rest of my minutes just on this, unpacking Jesus in the Old Testament, but that's not what I'm going to do, okay? We could do that another sermon. I've done it in the past. Uh, maybe we'll do that a little for Advent, which is coming in one month. Can you believe that? We're a month away from Advent. So maybe we'll do some more of that for Advent. We'll unpack Christ in the Old Testament. We'll see. So Christ alone, and the whole Bible actually is pointing to Christ. Now, Let's talk about the glory of God alone, okay? We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, forth for God's glory alone. Now, God is very concerned about his glory. What does glory mean? The Old Testament word is kabod, and it means weight. Did you know that? It means weight, a weighty person. You have a weight. So imagine if for some strange reason, in walked right now, LeBron James, Michael Jordan, along with Barack Obama and Donald Trump. And you'd be like, this is an odd foursome here. Okay? But, but those four people walking in, we would, for various reasons, feel the weight of those four people in here. You would feel the weight. You'd be like, whoa, what are they doing here? Now imagine God, the most weighty person in the universe, walking in here. (laughs) The creator and sustainer. 
And that's literally what it was to have Jesus incarnate, the creator walking around in flesh, the most weighty. That's what it means to have glory. All men are like grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Jesus, the most weighty. Now, in Isaiah 42, 8, God says through the prophet, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image, an idol. Why? Because they don't have any glory. There's no weight to them. There's no substance. They're weightless. They're like air. I am the glorious one, and I will not share it with any other lesser being. It also means renown, fame, power, light or brightness. You remember when God's glory showed up in the wilderness journey? It was a pillar of cloud by day. You think of a pillar, like a pole that holds something up. Imagine a pillar cloud, kind of like a cyclone. And a fire pillar by night, a, a, a whirlwind of fire by night. Lighting the night. It's amazing. When Moses went up to the mountain to be with God and God showed him his glory, he came off the mountain and he absorbed some of God's glory and his face literally glue. Glue? <laughs> some of you are thinking Elmer's right now. That's not what I meant to say. It's like he was plugged in. He was like those, those bracelets that kids wear. You know, you crack them and, you, and they glow. Moses was glowing. He was glowing up, as my daughter says. He shone with brightness. That's better. All my grammar people like, I like that one. He shone with brightness. <laughs> I said glue and the Elmer's cow flashed before your head. And you're like, no, nah, that's not good. The golden calf is not good. That's not God's glory. So <laughs> weight, renown, fame, power, light, or brightness. God will not share it. Okay. Now, the context that you find the verse in, because you find this word kabod all over the Old Testament, uh, and sometimes it does refer to human beings. It could, it could refer to the weightiness of an army or a king's wealth. So you have to use the context to understand what exactly is being pointed at by glory. But in terms of God's glory, this is mine. He is not sharing it. Now, King Solomon can have a lesser kind of glory but not God's glory. Do you see the difference? So you're going to find this word kabod all through the Old Testament. And sometimes it does refer to men and to armies and to cities and to various objects. However, we're talking about God's glory in comparison. There is no comparison. Okay. Now here is another one. Psalm 115, one to three. I love Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. 
For the sake of your, why would we give, give your name glory, God? For the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. So God is being glorified here for his love and his steadfastness and his faithfulness. Why should the nation say, the, the non-Jewish nations who had other gods, why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Part of God's glory is whatever he wants to do, he does, and no one can stop him. God will do whatever he pleases. This is Ephesians 1.11. He predestines all things according to the counsel of his will. God takes counsel with himself, determines what he will do, and always accomplishes it. So why should the nation say, where is their God? We can't see an idol. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Now, uh, the New Testament word uh, is doxa. How many of you have heard that word, doxa? It means honor, praise, worship. It's, so Old Testament kabod, New Testament doxa, glory. Now, last one, scripture alone. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, for God's glory alone. Remember, so that no one can boast. How do we know this? Scripture alone teaches us this. Now, the scripture claims for itself to be truthful in all that it says. Listen, this is important. In its original autograph, which simply means when Isaiah penned Isaiah, it was infallible. Now, when a scribe copied Isaiah and made a mistake or two, that is not infallible. So are you saying, Chris, that our English translations of the Greek and Hebrew are not 100% infallible? Yes, that's what I'm saying. Which is why in a good study Bible, you see a massive amount of footnotes. Some manuscripts have this, some manuscripts have that. There, you know, a thousand manuscripts have this and 10,000 have this because we don't have the original autographs. Now, the manuscript weight of the Bible, listen to me closely, outweighs any ancient document in antiquity. Period, hands down. There are more manuscripts of the Bible closer to its original writing than any other book that we have, period. We have copies of copies of copies of copies of copies close to the first century. And, you, and we could do a whole study just on manuscript evidence for the Bible's authority. It, no one argues with the Bible's authority according to manuscript evidence. Now, what the Bible says for itself though, outside of the weight of manuscript authority, what the Bible has to say for itself, and by the way, those variations are called variants. How many of you like the Loki series? Okay, they got that from all the variants. That's where they got that idea. Maybe, I don't know, I like to think that. There's all kind of variants in the Bible. Now listen, all the, of all the variants, did you know that no major doctrine of the Christian faith is, is done away with or disputed by all those variants? So you might have a the here where this manuscript doesn't have a the. You might have a number difference here or there. No major doctrines, no major, no major teachings of the Bible are disrupted by the variants. Isn't that good news? They're very minor things that there are variants on, which means a scribe just messed up in the detail while they were copying. 
No printing press, all hand copied. Okay. We do have a book back there about manuscripts. It's apologetics. Brett knows about it. If you want to go further on that, if you're like, that's interesting. It's a small book. It's back there. Go talk to Brett, pick it up, read it for yourself. Okay. We have to stop on that. What does the Bible actually say about itself though? Okay. The Bible actually claims for itself to have authority. It claims to be God's word. In other words, what God wanted for his creatures to know, he gave to us in the form of books, yes, written by men, but men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write what they wrote. Not inspired like after you watch Oprah, not that kind of inspired. Inspired, like filled with the Holy Spirit and what they wrote was exactly what God wanted them to write. Every letter, every word, exactly how God wanted it to be, though using human agency. So Psalm 119, the whole Psalm 119 is a praise to the Bible. Did you know that? Now you go to Psalm 119, it's a very long Psalm and it's a whole song praising the Bible. I love 105 though. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now, I love that imagery. The imagery is of we're in a dark place, and we are. We are in a dark place. The world is full of evil, and it lives inside you to a degree, right? That's your flesh. That was last week's sermon. Evil is not only out there, it's in here. We need the word to illumine and light the way. Did you know that Christianity in the very first weeks, months, and years was called the way? No Mandalorian yet. In fact, I think that's where they got it from. I like to think that at least. The way was Christianity. Okay? They were followers of the way. Well, this verse says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It shows the way. The way to God, the way to salvation, the way to heaven, the way to healthy living. Isn't it interesting how many hardened criminals, myself being one of them, find the grace of God in Christ and are radically changed and become totally different people? Testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony. This is what God's word does. It encounters unbelief and spiritual darkness and it regenerates and opens the eyes Hebrews 4, 12 to 13. This is a good one. You wanna, you wanna take a note on this one. For the word of God is living. It's alive. It's active. It's sharp. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Now remember, before guns, your main weapon was your sword. Okay, so in Pennsylvania, you can carry open carry. You can actually carry a pistol around with you as long as it's outside your belt and not concealed. Well, imagine back in the day when this was written, first century, people had swords. In fact, Jesus asked the disciples, how many swords do you have? He said, two. He says, that's enough. Swords were very common. They were your, your self-defense. You had a sheath and you would you'd pull it out. A double-edged sword is a very dangerous sword because no matter which way you swung it, someone was getting cut. So this word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, 
and I love this, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, the inner person, you. Now, I don't think that what God is doing is, uh, or, or the writer of Hebrews doing here, is trying to make a division between soul and spirit, just like he's not trying to make a division between joints and marrow. He's saying the immaterial part and the material part. That's you. You have a soul or a spirit and you have a body. That is a human being. You have a two part to you. And the Bible pierces you in all your parts. It cuts deep where? Into the heart, the core of you, the place where your mind, emotions, will, motives arise from. And it discerns the thoughts and intentions of your heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Quickly, uh, I just have one more after this. Peter, in 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21, says this, knowing first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Now, what's interesting is I didn't have time to get the first 19 verses up, but what he says is, listen, we were witnesses of his glory. I saw it. The Mount of Transfiguration is what he's referring to. He says, yet we have a surer testimony. And he says, it's the word of God. That, that always blows my mind. Peter's like, I saw with my eyes the glory of God breaking through Jesus. I saw Moses and Elijah. Yet the Bible has more weight. That's what he's saying. It has more authority than my eyewitness account. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture and all scripture is prophecy, not just the parts that predict future events, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. In other words, it doesn't originate with them. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God. That's important. How did the Bible get written through men? Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's how the Bible got written. The Bible claims for itself that it was written by God through people. Isaiah wrote, wrote Isaiah, Matthew writes Matthew, Luke writes Luke and Acts. And the Holy Spirit here is moving through. He's carrying them along as they write. Interestingly, with their own styles, in their own genre, with their own complexity of Greek and Hebrew, did you know that John is written at like first grade Greek level and the book of Hebrews is like scholar level? And he said, all, all on purpose. God writing through men. Last one. Jesus in his high priestly prayer, praying to his father right before the garden of Gethsemane, he says to his father, please, speaking of his disciples, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. I love that. Jesus says, sanctify my disciples in the truth. Your word is truth. And did you know that Jesus often quotes Moses and he says, God said, 
the Holy Spirit said through David. And so Jesus, we didn't have time to do this, but Jesus often quotes scripture. You, know, you read the, the four accounts of the gospels, watch how Jesus quotes scripture. And sometimes he's actually quoting Moses, but he says, and God said, like, but wait a minute, Moses said that. Did Moses say that? Yes. But did God say that through Moses? Yes. Okay, we don't have time to do all of that. However, if you want more of that, there are books for that in the back. Okay, so rehearse and we're done. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone so that no one can boast because the Bible alone teaches us this. We would not know of Jesus Christ with the precise clarity we have if we did not have the Bible. We would not know the gospel in its clarity if we did not have the Bible. We would not know who to trust when someone was telling us about metaphysics, the realm outside of physics, the immaterial world, if we didn't have a book to tell us about these things. Otherwise, it's just this person's opinion versus this person's opinion versus this person's opinion. This person had a vision and this person had a dream and this person has an idea. The Bible is unchanging. For 1,500 years, it took to be written. And it's been solid now for 2,000 years. Unchanged, unadded to. And the Bible has one central theme, friends. Salvation through Jesus Christ. He is who we celebrate. So when we talk about the Reformation, listen, the Reformation was actually a recovery of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And so when we call ourselves Reformed, and some of you don't like that label, that's fine. You don't need to. What you do need to do is see that what emerged out of the Reformation, specifically these five alones, are biblical. And we should hold them. And all biblical Protestants should hold these. And centrally, they all point to Jesus. And so that's who we're going to celebrate right now. We're going to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. He has accomplished salvation for us. When he arrives or before he arrived, uh, Gabriel prophesied to Mary, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So as the elements come around, we're going to remember Jesus. But first we're gonna sing Jesus, thank you. So if you could stand, we're gonna celebrate the gospel by taking communion. We're going to celebrate Christ by taking communion. And we're going to celebrate the five solas by singing Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you. The wrath of God completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Amen. Amen. What a beautiful song. Jesus' blood has washed away our sin. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. How do we respond? Thank you. Jesus, thank you. Friends, we are safe in Christ. God's grace has chosen us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In time and space, he led us, caused us to hear the gospel and gave us the faith to believe in Christ. Friends, we are saved 
by the blood of Christ, by Christ alone. We have no grounds to boast. This is all for God's glory, which is why we don't thank ourselves, which is why we don't praise ourselves. We don't sing hymns in a boomerang way to ourselves. We sing to God alone and for his glory. The Bible alone clearly teaches this text after text after text. We trust in the person and work of Christ because the Bible alone teaches us this is the way to salvation through Christ. Let's remember what Jesus accomplished for us this evening. Salvation, the Father's wrath completely satisfied in Christ. Jesus' body broken and bloodshed for us. Father, we say thank you. Jesus, we say thank you. Holy Spirit, we say thank you. Thank you for saving us from our own sins and from what our sins deserve. Father, you saved us from yourself through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you. Let us remember that it's not about us. May we rehearse the gospel and preach it to ourselves over and over. And Father, would you please give us opportunity to tell it to others. Open those doors and may we walk through them and share the power of God that is unto salvation. Father, use our gospel efforts to save. Work through us, we pray. We thank you for this evening. We thank you for this time of worship. We thank you most of all for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.